Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26, uh, a contrast between the blessings of God and the woes. So when you, when you look at this, um, quite a contrast between the, in the scripture between the blessings of God and the woes uh, of, our, of this sinful world. So follow with me as I read, starting in 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day that you've given to us and for these contrasts in scriptures. Lord, that we might seek the blessing of, of you uh, through your word and th through the uh, Holy Spirit. And Lord, that we might be mindful of the woes and, and seek to avoid those. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, uh, text by text. If you remember about a month ago, we started studying together uh, the Beatitudes of Luke chapter 6, this, this sermon on the plain, as Luke calls it. And then uh, we were away, then I had COVID, then Easter celebration and Good Friday and all that. So now we're, we're back at it. <clears throat> we're uh, back into uh, this, this portion of Luke Recall with me just a few things, and hopefully as a refresher, and hopefully as I say these things, it kind of uh, jogs your memory, like, oh yeah, I remember we, we talked about that, we considered that. Uh, so as, as we think about this sermon on the plane, remember that uh, it is a discipleship manual. It is not explaining uh, how one becomes a Christian or how one becomes a disciple. What it is explaining or describing to us is this is what the life of a follower of Christ should look like. If, if you're here this morning and you name the name of Christ and you would say, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a disciple of Christ, then Luke 6 should be describing you. Uh, not perfectly for any of us, but we should all be seeing uh, parts of this in our life. Also, last time we considered this, we talked about the blessed life. In fact, that's, that's the title of this message, the blessed life part two. We're just kind of making our way through those, those beatitudes or those blessings. But we define the, the blessed life as God's gracious favor. And remember that the blessed life is independent of life circumstances. <clears throat> Jesus says, if you are a follower of him, that you are a, you are blessed, <laughs> that that is your identity by faith in him. Whether you feel it or not, whether you know where your next paycheck is coming from, uh, whether your fridge is full of food or not, whether you're filled with sorrow, or whether uh, you feel rejected uh, by others, no matter what's going on in life, the, the truth is a follower of Christ, you are blessed. You have God's gracious favor. Nothing can or ever will change that. 
And so then ultimately what Jesus is saying is as Christians, as followers of Christ, we need to be living right side up. And that the world that we're living in is upside down. That the world that we're living in magnifies uh, the things in verses 24 through 26. So the world that we live in magnifies the riches and contentment or satisfaction or, or having all that you can have in the here and now. Uh, the world that we live in uh, maximizes happiness and pleasure, and, and the world that we live in maximizes popularity. And Jesus turns it on its head and says, if you're living for those things, if you're living for fame and pleasure and wealth and, and all those kind of things, then you're upside down. And you may get those things, but that's all you'll get. And so he says, woe to you if you're living for those things. In fact, Jesus mocks the world's values. And Jesus teaches us that blessedness may not look quite like what you think it should look like. And that blessedness includes poverty and being hungry <coughs> and sorrow uh, and being rejected. It's a challenging text. Also, uh, last time we met... Uh, remember, we did a bit of a comparison contrast with Matthew. Matthew has a sermon on the mounts, and Luke has a sermon on the plain. Are they the same sermon or not? We, we talked about that. We pointed out some of the differences. And it's with that that leads me to the first point this morning. Is if you want to follow along in the outline in your bulletin, or if not, if you just want to follow along with me, that's fine. But the first point is don't flatten the text. Don't flatten the text. And you're probably wondering, what in the world... Uh, Pastor Andrew, do you mean by that? Don't, don't flatten the text. And what I mean by that essentially is that we need to let God's word speak for itself. That we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, yes? That all the scripture, every jot and tittle, every, every a word in the scriptures down to its very order in scripture is God breathed. It's given to us by God. In other words, the Bible is God's voice to us and so we must let it speak right it's springtime yesterday was probably uh, the nicest uh, day we've had so far i'm not going to say the nicest day we'll have all year but the nicest the nicest day so far and probably in your house <clears throat> as in my house uh, when days like that come around <laughs> especially the wives or the women in the house go around the house and they open up all the windows, right? Does that happen in your house? <clears throat> they walk around and, and open up all those windows because they're letting in the fresh air, right? That's what biblical preaching is. Biblical preaching is opening up the windows to let the fresh, the wind, the, the fresh air of, of God's word come into our lives, come into our homes and change us. <coughs> preaching when it's done right is letting God's voice speak. Preaching is not making things up. Uh, preaching is not uh, a time for someone to stand up here and give their opinions, right? Preaching is letting God's word speak. The Bible is God's communication with us. I've said this to you before. I'll say it again this morning. I don't preach sermons. I've never preached a sermon in my life, I hope. I preach texts. I preach the word of God. I want to preach his voice. And when I'm up here talking, I want his voice speaking through me. It's not about me. It's about the scriptures and holding that forth to us because this changes us from the inside out. And so we're trying to open windows and let God's fresh air, let God's voice in. 
Why did I just share all that? Why did I just give maybe a mini, a mini lecture on, on homiletics, <clears throat> the study of preaching or how to preach? I share all that because I think when we come to Matthew, or Luke chapter 6, we often flatten the text. Uh, remember that Matthew and Luke are very similar, but there's also significant differences. And it's, some of those differences really jump out, and I want to highlight them. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Matthew, by inspiration of the Spirit, writes, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's similar to Luke, but that's not exactly what Luke says, is it? Matthew again says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Luke, by inspiration of the Spirit, says, Blessed are you who are poor. You hear the difference? There's a pretty big difference there, isn't there? Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, Blessed are you who are poor. There's another one. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For righteousness. Luke writes in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, by inspiration of the Spirit, that blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. As I read that, maybe you pick up on something. I, I hope you're picking up on Matthew... Is a little less personal because he uses third-person pronouns, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, whereas Luke is very direct. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who are poor. You hear how more, how more personal that is. But also, Matthew seems to put the emphasis on spiritual, right? Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit, Matthew writes, but not Luke. And Matthew writes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, but not Luke. Luke says, blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are you who hunger now. You hear the, the subtle differences and the subtle emphasis in Matthew on the spiritual, and Luke appears to emphasize the physical. But sadly, what a lot of people do is, I think they transpose what Matthew says, and they, they transpose that over Luke, and they say, what Luke really means to say is, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. In fact, I, I read not a few commentaries that said this, quote, don't make the mistake of thinking Luke is talking about people who are physically poor or people who are physically hungry, end quote. So those commentators, and again, I encounter a lot of them, said don't make the mistake and think that when you, when you read Luke 6.20, he's talking about actual physical poverty. <clears throat> maybe they're right, maybe I'm wrong, but I think when they do that, they're flattening the text. <clears throat> I think they aren't letting God's voice speak, and I'm all for letting Scripture interpret Scripture. That's a very, very important rule of of studying the Bible, but we also need to open the windows and let Scripture breathe, and I think recognize that Luke has a different aim, a different purpose, a different audience than Matthew, so I think it's a mistake to try and take those two texts and force them together and make them say the same thing. So I hope, I hope you're tracking with that. <clears throat> don't flatten the text. Don't make the poverty and the hunger uh, that Luke talks about exclusively physical or exclusively spiritual. <laughs> Don't read it and assume when Jesus says poor, it only means the physically poor, but also don't read it and think, well, that only means the spiritually poor. 
We're prone to either or stuff, huh? And so often it's both and. And here I think we have an example of it being both and. So don't flatten the text. When you read the poverty in verse 20, I think it's fair to say it's speaking spiritually and physically. I think that's often the case when you come to Scripture, both and, not either or. Now, why would I say that? And again, I want you guys to be Bereans, right? I want you guys to study God's Word, and if God's Word contradicts me, my Word don't listen to me, right? It's God's Word that matters, and I want you to study God's Word and think about God's Word and not just take me for what I'm saying. God's Word is the authority not me. So notice verse 20. Verse 20 says, Jesus lifted up his eyes on who? Who did he lift his eyes on, verse 20? His disciples, right? Well, that's immediately a spiritual component, isn't it? That's a spiritual component. And that's huge. This Sermon is addressed to disciples specifically, not humanity generally. It's huge that we get that. So I'm going to say it again. This sermon by Christ is aimed directly, specifically at disciples of Christ. He is not talking to the world generally. Okay? And say it another way. The message is not addressed to the poor and hungry of the world This sermon is addressed to the believing poor and hungry of the world. Big difference. Big difference. Jesus is not saying that everyone who is poor, physically, economically, is blessed. He's not saying that. He is saying that his disciples are blessed, right? Blessed are you. Who's the you? The disciples, right? He's looking at his disciples in his eyes lovingly. He knows what's coming, the battles that are coming, the hardships that are coming. He knows what it will cost to follow him. And he looks him in the eyes and lovingly says to them, Blessed are you when you are poor. Such a difference than the idea of when people often quote this or Matthew. I'm actually not sure which one they're quoting. But I often hear people say, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor. Where does the Bible say that? What it says is, in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. What it says in Luke is, blessed are you, disciples who are poor. It's not humanity generally, it's the disciples specifically. That's crucial, because otherwise you have Jesus saying, everyone who's economically poor is going to be in heaven. Right? Because he says in verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the what? The kingdom of heaven. So So if you open this up and say, well, Jesus is talking to everybody. He's talking to anyone who's economically poor. Then you just preached them right into heaven, and they're not. That's false. That's not the gospel. Jesus did not offer himself on the cross to merely deliver us from physical poverty, hunger, and grief. Jump down to verse 22. Just to keep helping you see the spiritual and physical components here. Verse 22, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are you, again, very specific and lovingly, blessed are you when people hate you. (laughs) That's quite the verse, huh? Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, a crucial phrase, on account of the Son of Man. 
on account of the Son of Man. That's, that's an important qualifier. There's a big difference between suffering because you're a jerk, right? And suffering because you name the name of Christ and you're living for Christ. Big, big, big difference. But what I think is fair to do to catch the voice of God, the voice of God in our text, is to take that phrase at the end of verse 22, on account of the Son of Man, and plug that into the rest of the Beatitudes. I think that catches the heart. I think that catches the voice. So, for example, verse 20, I think you can read it, <clears throat> be faithful to the text. What we want to be is faithful to, to the text and say, Blessed are you who are poor on the count of the Son of Man. Blessed are you who are hungry now on account of the Son of Man. You see that in the text? <clears throat> don't flatten it. Don't make it either or. It's, it's both and. Jesus is speaking to his disciples who because of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's the spiritual component, they have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because of their faith and trust in Jesus, because following him, it has cost them their money, it has cost them food, it has given them sorrow, and it will lead to hardship. And therefore, Luke is speaking both physical and spiritual poverty, physical and spiritual hunger, and so on. I, I hope that's making sense. <clears throat> I hope you're tracking with that and, and getting that. Maybe it helps if I say it this way. When Luke records Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor, and blessed are you who are hungry now, and, and so on, he is referring to his disciples who first became disciples because they recognized their spiritual need. Right? They wouldn't be following him if they hadn't recognized their spiritual need. They recognized that their greatest need in life is first and foremost spiritual. So rather than living life large in this world and pursuing wealth and, and money and fame and, and joy and contentment and satisfaction, instead of pursuing all of that, they've recognized Jesus is better. And they gave up everything to follow him. And Jesus says, you are blessed for doing that. While the world looks like that and says, you're out of your mind. I think that's what's happening in our text. It makes me think of the parable of the pearl of great value or great price, depending on your translation. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew 13, 45, I think is a good parallel where it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, what's that guy go and do? He sells everything he has and buys it. And we know the disciples did this. Look at uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 11. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus calls his first disciples, Simon and James and John. And it says in verse 11, when they brought their boats to land, they did what? They left everything. That made them what? Poor. Their commitment to Jesus, their spiritual commitment to Jesus cost them their pocketbook. Yes? We see it again in Luke 5.18. <clears throat> That's a typo. It should say 28. 5.28. <clears throat> Jesus calls Levi. Remember, he's a tax collector. He's pretty rich, probably. Verse 28. Leaving everything. He rose and followed him. So they, these early disciples, they left their businesses, they left their places of work, their fishing nets, they left their tax booths. Later on in Luke chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus sends out the 12, the 12 apostles. 
and in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Well, that sounds awfully poor to me, huh? <clears throat> They'd be hungry too, no food. There'd be sorrow, there'd be hardship. Later on in that same chapter, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples and all who would want to follow him, and maybe you're here this morning and you're here because you want to follow Christ, you're trying to find out more about him. Well, Luke 9, 23, Jesus offers up this, this invitation. If anyone would come after me, what do you need to do? Let him or her deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We, of course, know as you read through the gospel and the, and the, the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, <laughs> and even church history, that the apostles do face a tremendous amount of poverty <clears throat> and hunger and weeping and rejection for Jesus. Even death, right? We talked about that a little while back. <laughs> Jesus himself had no place to lay his head. So are we seeing it? Are we seeing how, I think Luke 6.20, we're not supposed to flatten this both end, that because of the disciples' spiritual commitment to Christ, it cost them physically. Jesus is saying that your spiritual commitment to follow him as a disciple might just cost you your money. It might just lead to hunger. It might just lead to sorrow and rejection. And if and when that happens, please know this, brothers and sisters in Christ, my disciples, Jesus says, you are what? You are blessed. The world wants to mock you and, and think you're, you're upside down, but really the world's upside down. You're right side up. Everything inside you, disciples, is going to kick against this. It's going to be costly. It's going to be hard to follow me. But let this guide you. Let this strengthen you. You are blessed. Yours is the kingdom. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. On account of the name of Jesus, you may go broke. On account of the name of Jesus, you may go hungry. On account of the name of Jesus, you may weep. On account of the name of Jesus, you may be rejected, but Jesus is worth it. He is worth it because on account of his name, yours is the kingdom of heaven. On account of the name of Jesus, you will be satisfied. On account of the name of Jesus, you will laugh. This is the blessed life that, that Jesus is preaching and teaching, right side up living. When you are dirt poor, on account of the name of Jesus, Jesus says, it's okay, you still have me. This is the blessed life. When you're suffering the pangs of hunger on account of my name, you still have me. This is the blessed life, disciples. When you are weeping on account of my name, you still have me. This is the blessed life, disciples, that when everyone is mocking you or rejecting you and they hate you and they revile you, you still have me, Jesus is saying. The blessed life is Jesus. He is the treasure. <coughs> Jesus is preparing his disciples for battle. Following Jesus will be hard. It will be costly. What do you do when the world is throwing everything it has at you? You run to Jesus. You treasure Jesus. You recognize the blessed life you have in Jesus. And in Jesus, you have true happiness and true wealth and true acceptance. Jesus is our all. He is our everything. So don't flatten the text. Make sense? <clears throat>
That's my introduction. <laughs> what is the blessed life? We're going to look specifically at verse 20 and what, what poverty means physically and spiritually. <coughs> I've argued that Luke's point is that the disciples are physically poor, that they are physically hungry, that they are sorrowful, that they are rejected on account of their faith in Christ. That's, that's been the argument so far, right? That because of their spiritual commitment, it has cost them in this world. Tremendously so. So let's just dive into specifically what poverty means uh, for us. And we'll start by considering it spirit from the spiritual aspect or component. And the way I would say it is this, that the disciples' spiritual poverty, <coughs> the disciples' spiritual poverty led them to being physically poor. Which begs the question, what do I mean by being spiritually bankrupt or spiritual poverty? <clears throat> so look at verse 20, and notice it says, Blessed are you who are poor. And that word poor <clears throat> is a fascinating word. Both Matthew and Luke use the same word for poor. But there's actually two different Greek words for poor in the New Testament. Remember the Bible is written in Koinonia Greek, which just means common language. It was the everyday language everyone was talking, so it was accessible to everyone. So when they would talk in Jesus' day or the Apostles' day, they had two different words to describe poverty. One of those words for poverty meant you're, you're breaking even. That you worked hard all week and you made just enough money to pay the bills and that's it. No, no money for eating out. No money for vacation. None of that. You have just enough money to break even, to, to get through that week. That's one word they use in that day to describe poverty. And they had a second word that they used to describe poverty. And what that word meant was that you were so poor, you have to beg. You're driven to beg. In fact, the word actually means to crouch or to cringe. Because you're so destitute financially that all you can do is crouch in a corner and cry out for help. That's all you can do. Utterly destitute, utterly dependent upon others to survive. Well, guess which one Luke uses? And Matthew. The second one. That's the kind of poverty we're talking about. First and foremost, spiritually. It is a powerful, powerful picture of my and your helpless, desperate situation before God. So the first mark of the blessed life is this. is being able to say, I don't have what it takes. That's spiritual poverty in a nutshell. That's, that's where the spiritual life and the blessed life begins. It's, I don't have what it takes, that I need God, that I am not self-sufficient. <clears throat> the world that we live in constantly tells us all the answers are, are inside. Just, just look deep inside, right? You'll, just believe in yourself. Oh, 
over and over and over. That's their mantra, right? Look inside, believe in yourself. Look inside, believe in yourself. You can do anything if you just believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And the scriptures scream at us, no, that the blessed person sees things right side up and cries out with all their heart that, God, I've looked deep inside and it scares me. <laughs> that's, that's what the humble person, the spiritually broken person says. I, I've looked inside and I see a mess. I don't believe in myself. I don't have it all together. I need you, God. I need you every moment of every day for every decision and every action and every conversation. I need you, God. And I don't just need you a little. I desperately need you. I am utterly and helpless and hopeless in and of myself that apart from you, God, I can do nothing. The, the, the Christian, the, the disciple who is poor in this sense, uh, gladly says, I don't got this. I need to be rescued. I need to be redeemed. I am spiritually bankrupt. And so we beg, we kneel, we plead to God, rescue me from my sin. Rescue me from me. I've met the worst enemy. <laughs> it's not out there. It's right here. I'm my own worst enemy. I, I, I'm a sinner. And that's where the blessed life begins. Being painfully, horribly aware I am a great sinner. A great sinner. I cannot save myself. When I believe in myself and try and take things in my own hands, it makes things worse and better. I am helpless. I am hopeless in and of myself. I do not have what it takes to rescue myself, to be made right before a holy God. I need a Savior to do for me what I could never do myself. I don't got this, but Jesus does, and I'm wholly and solely trusting in him. Does that describe you this morning? Is that your heartbeat this morning? Is your heartbeat this morning just that, that fact, that truth? God, I can't do this. God, I need you. God, help me. <clears throat> I need you more than I need that coffee in the morning when I get up, huh? We have a, a thing in our house that says something like, I need a little bit of Jesus, but, or a little bit of coffee, but a whole lot of Jesus. <coughs> infinitely more so. I need an infinite amount of Jesus for my infinite amount of sins. Is that you this morning? Do you recognize your helplessness? Do you recognize your hopelessness in and of yourself? That whatever situation you have yourself in, you can't get out of it. You can't soulless bootstrap us. You can't pull yourself up by your own boots, bootstraps. That you need God. You need Jesus. Throw yourself on him. Cast yourself on him. I, I don't know your life situation. I don't know all that's going on. But I, I do know if, if there's sin in your life that's unconfessed, if you've been living a life for your own ambitions, your own kingdom, your own wants, your own desires, repent. Throw yourself on God. He will have mercy on you. Humble yourself. But he resists the proud, which is scary. Don't continue in your pride. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Know his rich blessing. Maybe you've already done that, but even as a believer, we struggle, we have hardships, we have difficulties. Whatever that is, throw yourself 
upon God who will help you and strengthen you and rescue you through it as you seek to <clears throat> obey him. <coughs> Excuse me. And that doesn't stop as, as a believer. You know, that, that's how we come to faith in Christ. We throw ourselves upon him, confessing our sins to him, but that never stops. I, I hope each day, Christian, you recognize how desperate you are for him. And I hope each day you're throwing yourself upon him uh, desperately for his help and his strength throughout the days. In fact, another word for that is humility. <clears throat> and in, in, in your bulletin, or maybe it got passed out separately from the bulletin, I'm not sure. Hopefully <coughs> you got this. Uh, if not, <clears throat> hopefully there's more out there you can grab. But all this is, <clears throat> it's a worksheet. I'm not going to go through it. <clears throat> but it talks about manifestations of pride. Then on the other side, it talks about manifestations of humility. This I wanted to be a tool for you. Is, as you've heard a message about spiritual poverty and your spiritual commitment to Christ and how that requires humility, I just want this to be something the Lord can use in your life. That to, Please don't just tuck it away, but take some time this week to pray through it, to think through it. We left blanks in there uh, so that you can uh, write some thoughts down. I encourage you to bring that to your growth groups. And talk about that. Go through and say, you know what? The Lord worked in my heart to show me these are ways that I have pride. And I need help. I can't do it on my own. I need help to kill that pride. Will you guys help me? And you can talk about humility too and how you need to grow in humility as, as we all need to grow. That's part of being poor. That's part of the blessed life. So please, please dig through that. Uh, please, please think about that. If you're in my group especially, come Tuesday night ready to talk about that. <laughs> <clears throat> if you're thinking about coming to my group, that's a great night to come. All the, all the groups are great, great groups to go to. Please take a veil of them, dig into them. That's part of saying, I can't do this on my own. That's why we're all here this morning, right? That, that's, I know that's why I'm here. I can't do this on my own. I need help, tremendously so. I'm part of the body as much as you guys are part of the body. And being a church is about saying, I need help. I can't do this alone. I need Christ, and I need his family to love and support. <clears throat> So that's the spiritual, how about the physical? The physical aspect of being poor. And what I want to say with, with this part, <laughs> as we come at it from, from this angle, is that following Jesus will change the way you use your money. Essentially, that, that's what I want to bring out here. That So far, I've argued that the disciples' spiritual commitment to Jesus cost them their pocketbook. It cost them financially. They, they left everything for Jesus. So you might be wondering, the question might be in your mind, is Jesus saying, in this text or some other text, is he saying that in order to follow Jesus, you must be financially poor, you must be broke? And the answer to that is no. <coughs> but it does mean, if it comes to it, you must be willing to give up all of your finances for the sake of Christ. You must be willing to do so. I don't think I'm out of my mind or insane by saying this morning, it's not hard to see this coming to the church in America rapidly, where following Christ is going to cost you financially. <clears throat> in light of cancel culture and many different aspects that are at, at working against us, <coughs> a few examples. In recent years, a number of very large financial institutions, banks, have terminated services because certain persons or organizations are guilty of what they define as hate speech, right? Hate speech is that 
big word everyone likes to throw around and gives them the right to cancel you, right? If that's hate speech, then I'm going to demonetize you. You can't bank here anymore. <clears throat> They're doing that. They're doing that right now. They've been doing that for several years. Furthermore, if you're on social media at all, social media platforms have demonetized certain users by prohibiting payment services to those users because they don't like what they're saying. PayPal and other major credit card networks have stopped processing payments for organizations that they again deem as hate groups. It is not difficult to see the same thing happening to Christians and churches in America. It's not difficult at all when they see what they believe us to be violating their policy of hate speech. And it's not hard to pick on what those would be. When we say homosexuality is sinful, then the world we live in would say, that's hate speech. And I tell you, it's the most loving thing in the world I could ever tell you. <laughs> or when we say things like gender transition is a horrific perversion of God's good design, the world would say, that's hate speech. And it's not hard to see America getting to the point where if you persist with that kind of talk, you can't bank here. You can't do this here. <clears throat> so we're living in a day and a time, and we are blessed to be living in this day and time, uh, to think about those things and be prepared for those things. Jesus is saying, <clears throat> when the choice must be made between money and God, God must come first. If following Jesus means you're going to lose everything earthly, everything materially, so be it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It makes me think of Matthew 6, <coughs> 19 and following, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Catch this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot love Jesus and love money. You cannot follow Jesus and follow money. If you are putting your hope and your confidence in your bank accounts or your retirement funds or earning potentials, you may amass massive amounts of worldly wealth. You may know great comfort and pleasure in this life, but that's all you will know. That's all you will know. That's what Jesus is saying. All you have to do is drop down to verse 24. Woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation. So see, Jesus is bringing a radical reversal. Jesus is turning things right side up. He's saying, as a Christian, you must not chase money, how much I can make, how much can I pile up. You must be willing to lose it all for Jesus. Amen? <coughs> kind of, huh? <clears throat> that was pretty poor. But we must. We must be willing to lose it all for Jesus. You also must be willing to radically and generously give it away for kingdom purposes. Jesus is talking about the great reversal. He's talking about living right side up. The world wants to hoard money. I can remember when I was a kid, 8, 9, 10 years old, I had some friends who wore that shirt that said um, something about 
who, he who dies with the most toys wins. That, that kind of idea. I don't know if that's still out there as a saying. Uh, but that's the world that we live in, right? He who dies with the most toys, the most nice things, who, whoever can amass the most money, that, that person wins. And Jesus says, no, the world wants to hoard money. Jesus says, you need to go, go from chasing the almighty dollar to generously and radically giving it away for kingdom purposes. I think of the poor widow in Luke 21 who gives all that she has. I think of the church in Macedonia who under great trial and stress gave above and beyond their means. They gave sacrificially. Jesus tells us in Acts 20 verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I would argue that generosity is one of the greatest evidences of spiritual poverty. <coughs> Let me offer what might be a strange illustration. Maybe it's a relevant il- application. I don't know. But how are you guys liking the price of gas? <coughs> That's right, I brought it up in the morning service. <laughs> How are you liking that price of gas? I was liking driving to Florida. It was a lot cheaper as we went south <coughs> until we hit Georgia, Florida. It went up more. I have a brother in California. They're paying a lot more than we're paying. <coughs> so how are you liking that price of gas, huh? <coughs> I asked that because perhaps you or someone you know has been tempted not to come to church because you can't afford the price of gas. I would ask you to think about that in light of our text, and maybe we can apply it this way. Blessed are you who are poor, because you don't forsake the gathering of God's people, even though it costs you an arm and a leg to get here. Amen? I hope the price goes up to $10 a gallon. Then we'll see just how serious we are about this, huh? Maybe there's some in our midst who God has blessed in a, in a rich way, and you're not financially poor. You're doing very well as you've sought to labor and work, and the Lord has rewarded that. And for you, you could easily pay for $10 a gallon. But then there's others here who are struggling now, and maybe what you could do is generously give that to those people who can't be here otherwise, perhaps. Does that make sense? Is that a relevant application from our text? <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think proud people give grudgingly. Humble people give cheerfully. <coughs> Spiritually poor people, and often Uh, Those who are physically poor often give cheerfully and generously. But God takes no pleasure (coughs) in grudge giving. God wants you to give because you want to give. He wants you to give because he's the greatest gift of all. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that means rich spiritually. <coughs> In the end, as cheerfully as we may give, we can never outgive the truly cheerful giver, and that is God. And we sang it this morning, how much he loves us, he's given us his son. What more can he give? Willingly, Jesus, our God the Father, gave his son as he had decided in his own heart. And he did not do that reluctantly or under compulsion. God did that joyfully. What a God. God loves a cheerful giver because God is one. 
And think about this, what a blessed life. Look at what God has given you in Christ. It's not just salvation, it's not just forgiveness, it's not just spared from punishment, but he has given you himself as his treasure, as your treasure. He has given you himself, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given you himself. He's held nothing back, nothing back. And now he says, out of that abundance, you can give because God has given you what can never be taken away. Again, him. You see? When you stand before God on judgment day, will you be ashamed of how you spent your money? Will you be proud of the toys, the clothes, the house, the other comforts that you bought? Or will you know that you gave sacrificially and generously for the kingdom of God? Will you look back and find, ask yourself this please, in light of our text, will you look back and find that your finances served God or you? We're wrapping it up with verse 20 again. (coughs) Jesus ends this first blessing by saying, yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. Don't you love that? He doesn't say, it's not future tense. He doesn't say, yours will be the kingdom of God. He's not promising anything here. This is a statement of fact. If because of your spiritual commitment to Christ, you are willing to give up anything and everything for him, you are blessed because yours is right now and forever the kingdom of God. How's that for a conclusion? All the riches of the whole world from beginning to end can't even begin to compare to an ounce of the riches that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, yours is the kingdom of God. What a truth. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Are you poor? Are you poor? Let's pray. As I do so, I invite the praise team to come up. Father, we are challenged by your text in many, many, many ways. It's not easy to believe or even practice what has been said this morning. We want to believe that the blessed life is is all about wealth and possessions and having the most toys. Lord, teach us, help us to deny temporary pleasures and benefits in light of the eternal pleasure and benefits that are ours in Christ. Lord, I somewhat scared to pray this, but Lord, I ask that you would do whatever it takes to humble us. We are a proud people. We seek to do so much in our own strength and for our own glory and our own kingdom. So Lord, I ask that you would be gracious to us. Do whatever it takes to help us see and understand that we are helpless, we are hopeless apart from you. (laughs) Help me and each one of us here, Father, please, to grow in our utter dependency upon you. Help us to be willing to follow you, even if it costs us every penny that we have. Not because we somehow think we're earning it, but because you have purchased us, you have redeemed us, you've done it all for us. What else can we do than offer up everything in response to your love? Not to earn it. We could never earn it. 
And Lord, maybe there are some here this morning, though, who are still trying to earn it. They still think that they can pull themselves up. They still think they can do it in their own strength. Lord, again, be gracious to them. Convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Help them to see how horrific and however painful it might be, their sin. But then, Lord, be gracious and show them that however deep and awful and horrific that sin is, that Jesus is an even greater Savior. And that his blood goes deeper than the darkest stain and washes us white as snow. What a Savior. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.